Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for your word that it may satisfy us, lead us, and give us life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please remain, remain standing for this morning's scripture reading from Matthew chapter 6, as well as Matthew chapter 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as Ryan mentioned in the announcements, we have a learning community coming up in August on prayer, and I would encourage you, please do consider coming to join us to cultivate a deeper life of prayer. We started off this year with a commitment to become a praying family, and we, as we come into the fall, want to continue to cultivate that commitment. And so we're doing it with the learning community, but we're leading into the learning community with a sermon series this month on prayer. Two weeks ago, I, I preached on praise. What does it look like to prime our prayer by praising God, seeing who He is? Last week, we talked about a specific type of prayer, which was confession. What does it mean to confess our sin? What does it mean to bring our darkness that yet remains in our flesh to the light? What does that look like? And today, we're going to talk about prayer more generally, or as sometimes it's called, as you've heard the word already today, petition. How do we come and ask in prayer? As I was thinking about this morning, interestingly, I I was thinking about the summer between my freshman year of college and sophomore year. So I'd been at college for a year, came home and worked in my hometown for a summer at a golf course. And if you've never worked at a golf course, which I'm imagining most of you have, and I know Aaron has because we've talked about it. If you work at a golf course, you get up early before the sun rises because you got to get going in the summer right when the sun gets up. As soon as there's light, you're working because you're trying to beat the time between sunrise and the first tea time, and there's a lot of stuff you got to do. The good news is you get off early, right? You work early in the morning, you get off early in the afternoon. My first week of training for this working outside at the golf course. Uh, Everything went fine. Basic stuff, right? Like, you know how to drive a lawnmower. You know how to weed eat. At least I did. But the one thing that freaked me out a little bit was mowing the greens. Even if you've never played golf, you know that the greens are a pretty important part of the course. You also know, even if you've never played golf, that the grass is very short on greens. And in the summertime, the grass grows fast. And so you have to mow the greens every morning. It's the first thing you do, in fact. You're waiting. You're just waiting for the sun to get bright enough to go out on these mowers 
and mow the greens. Now, my first week uh, was, I, 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 use, I use this word, I don't know if it's really this, but like it felt traumatic to me because uh, as I was learning how to mow the green, like, right, your first time, uh, I took a big divot out of the green. It was not a good sight. Uh, and uh, the, my boss proceeded to uh, basically like a dog, take my neck and show me uh, the green grass where there was no longer grass, just dirt, because I made a huge divot on the green. So eventually, though, I got better uh, from that first Monday to the Friday. And I thought to myself, listen, is, I, this job will be fine as long as I don't have to mow greens. Well, I didn't know this, but the next Monday I come back and um, he says, here is your green mower. Uh, you have to go mow these four holes. Come to find out, um, at a small golf course with a small crew, you mow greens every day. That's what you do. Uh, I was terrified. I wasn't good at it, but you had to mow greens every single day. Now, by the end of the summer, I got better at it, but I wasn't as good as those who had been doing it for a long time. What I needed, though, was the encouragement of all the fellow workers who had been doing it for years ahead of time. Now, the reason I share that story is because, in some ways, prayer can be similar in the Christian life, right? You think, yeah, I, I don't feel very good at prayer, right? Hopefully, uh, I'll get better at prayer, but you regularly feel like you're not good at prayer. The pressure seems high. And then you think, wait a minute, I have to do this every day? I have to pray every day like I have to mow the greens every day? And the answer is, yeah, you do, right? You do. And yet, there's nothing worse than being asked to do something regularly that you don't feel good at. You know what that's like, right? It feels defeating. You're being invited in to do this thing, but you don't quite feel good at it. And the thing about prayer is that no one ever arrives at prayer. And in fact, we, we begin to get better at prayer when we just surrender to the fact that this is a journey, that prayer is walking with a person, that we will get better at prayer as we give ourselves to it. But as we give ourselves to prayer, we all need encouragement in it. We need encouragement in prayer like I need an encouragement every day from those on the Greens crew who had been there longer than me saying, you can do it, you can do it. And so this morning, Jesus' passage that we read, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, is a great encouragement to us as we practice prayer. In our passage today, Jesus gives us incredibly encouraging words regarding prayer. And as we look at it, we're primarily going to look at the second passage that we read, which is from chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And we're going to see it in three points, okay? We're going to see that in this great encouragement in prayer, Jesus calls us to look at the promise of prayer, the posture of prayer, and the practice of prayer. Okay, the promise of prayer is where we'll start. Look with me in verse 7. If you don't open your Bibles, if you don't have them, or you can look at your app. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. When we come to chapter 7, this is the third time that Jesus has mentioned prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. The first time he engages the topic of prayer, it's a warning. It's a warning about prayer. He says, don't pray like the Pharisees and don't pray like the Gentiles. The second time he mentioned prayer, first is warning, second is pattern. He says, this is how you pray. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And then in chapter seven here, as I said, the third time he speaks of prayer, it's an encouragement to pray. It's a call to pray. So it's not a warning, he's already given that. It's not the pattern, he's already given that. Now it's an encouragement to pray. And we see in this encouragement right off the bat, Jesus gives three verbs. He says, ask, 
seek, and knock. So if we think about these words, these are three words in increasing intensity. I was thinking about this this week, and as I was thinking about the sermon, I was sitting in our living room, and our two-year-old son, James, was playing. And James is in this stage where he does this thing where he can be playing, and he can be completely in the zone. And all of a sudden, he'll look up and realize his mom's not in the room. He'll just look up and say, Mama? Right? He starts asking. He starts asking, Mama? And you can just watch him. He says it, and he waits. No response. He asks. He's waiting to receive word. Here I am. Nothing, though. And so this week, he did it. I was watching him. He said, Mama? Nothing. After two or three times, he slowly got up, and he started walking around. He started seeking. Mama, where are you? That is like the phrase in my house right now. From him. Mama, where are you? So he's seeking. He's looking to find her. And then in this particular day, somehow he realized that she was in our office at home. Whatever she was doing, she needed and deserved time away, right? So I said, just go in the room. She's like, oh, thank, that's great. So she goes in there, but James was on the hunt. He was seeking, he was asking. And somehow he found out she was in the room. And I just watch him as he goes over there and he starts banging on the door, knocking. Mama, where are you? Mama, where are you? And eventually she opened the door. So some type of picture like this is what Jesus is giving us. Ask, seek, knock, right? Like a child. But when we reflect on the passage, we actually see that the focus is less on those verbs in Jesus' words, and it's more on the promises. It's more on the promise. And so essentially what he says in verse 8, there's a promise corresponding to each verb. He says, ask, and it will be given to you, verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. In verse 7, he says, seek and you will find. In verse 8, he says, and the one who seeks will find. And then the last verb, knock, and it will be open to you. In verse 8, he says, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So the focus is on the promise. The obvious response to this encouragement when Jesus, our Lord, says, ask, you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock the door will absolutely be open to you. This should encourage us. This should, we should read this, and this should be the sermon. We should be able to read this, and the automatic response would be an enriched prayer life, and yet that isn't often how we read it. There could be lots of reasons why this is. I would imagine one of the reasons you share with me is that our minds go to a place of doubt because there are times we may recall when we did pray and we didn't experience God answering that prayer. Or we've prayed and we haven't had an answer yet. For example, we may recall times when we prayed to pass an exam and we didn't pass. We may have prayed for a job or to get into a school. We didn't get the job. We didn't get the promotion. We didn't get into the school. Maybe you prayed for a relationship and yet that relationship has ended. Maybe you've prayed for healing and healing still hasn't come. And in many of these cases, you're praying for what you believe are obviously good things. And yet there is no answer. And my guess is we've all experienced something like this. So then how are we to take Jesus' promise? We know that there is not an option of ignoring his promise or even saying it's not true. But how, do we, how are we to understand this promise as Jesus is meant to communicate it? What could he possibly mean here? If you and I have asked and haven't received, and yet he said we will, what could he mean? 
Well, in order to understand this, we have to understand verses 9 through 11. And when we read through, it might seem strange. It might seem strange. Why does verse 9 follow verse 8? So after verse 8, let's look in verse 9. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So what is he saying? Essentially, what he's saying is, hey, listen, many of you out here are parents. And you know that if your child asks you for a good thing, for example, if they're hungry and they ask for food and they say, can I have a snack? You don't give them a rock and say, if you just chew hard enough and suck long enough, you'll taste something, right? No, of course you wouldn't do that. That would be wicked. And he says, oh, by the way, while we're at it, you are actually evil and you still won't do that. And so if that's true, he gives us a so much more argument, or if that's true, then this must be true. And that is in verse 9, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now let's go one step further just by asking the flip side of this. If God is really good, or if you as a parent who are evil still want to do good to your children, what if they did say, I'm hungry, and they ask for a rock? Would you give them a rock? No. If they were hungry, good desire, and they asked for a rock, you wouldn't give them a rock because you know bread is better for them. What if they actually asked you for a serpent? Would you really give them a serpent? Well, no, not if you love your child. Not if you want to give them good gifts. And you see, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us into a very specific promise. And the promise is that God is an all-wise and good father, and he only gives good gifts to his children. And if we're to understand Jesus as saying he'll give us anything we ask for all the time, that would be misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. And we actually know this. We, We really do know this. Imagine if you could ask for anything and you would receive it. That's called magic. That, that reminds me actually of Aladdin. Right? It's like we would find, it's like God is giving us this magic prayer lamp. And anytime we rub the lamp, this genie comes out and gives us exactly what we asked for. We know that that's not what God is saying. We know that's not what Jesus is saying. You've seen the movie Yesterday, maybe, right? It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, so uh, if you have faith in Jesus, whatever, if you have faith in, in God as Father, uh, whatever you ask for, he has to say yes. He has to say yes, even if he doesn't want to. We know intuitively that this can't be right. I mean, think back with me. This would be a disaster. Have you ever asked for anything years ago where you fervently asked for it? You really thought it was what was best for you. And it didn't happen. And now looking back from the perspective, you think, praise God he did not give me that. Praise God he did not answer that. I have a mentor uh, who, who once told a story where when he first started seminary, he was in a dating relationship from college. And he said, uh, the woman was, was a wonderful woman and she would have been a wonderful ministry partner. There were so many things we had in common, but for some reason we were growing apart. And it broke my heart because I was sure that I loved this woman. I was sure that this was the woman that God was going to give me to marry and that we were going to enjoy life together and we were going to be ministry partners together. And for some reason, no matter how hard I tried, 
throughout my first year of seminary, the relationship, we just drew further and further apart. And he said, I remember praying specifically and giving God all the reasons why she was the woman for me. And we ended up breaking up, he said. Now, three years later, he, he met his wife, and now he's in his early 70s, and he's been married to his wife. They have three children, and they, they planted a church together. They've done ministry for decades together. And he said, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the woman that I desired to be with when I was in seminary, but rather, looking back now, I see I know exactly why God gave me this woman, my current wife, and not the other woman who's also married and has been in ministry for years. He was able to look back and say, I didn't understand then, and I'm at a place now where I understand. Years later, he understood. You see, one of the things that would be a disaster if God gave us everything we asked for is that we lack so much wisdom and perspective, we might ask for really stupid things, but not know it. As one commentator helpfully said, if it were the case that whatever we ask God, it was given to us, he said, then I for one would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. He said, and if I think, I think if you consider, you will agree too. He said, it would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by God's prayer promise, he was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask it, and in exactly the terms we ask. How could we possibly bear that burden? John Stott writes this, he says, so the promise then that we have of prayer in this passage is that if we ask for good things, God will grant them. If we ask for things which are not good, either in themselves or not good for us or others, he denies them. But here's the thing, only God knows the difference. Only God knows the difference because God is all good and God is all wise. So the promise of prayer that Jesus gives us is a promise that God will give us good things when we ask. But the obvious question is, okay, but how do we ask? Because if God already knows what he's going to give us, then why would we pray? And if God already knows what he's going to give us, then how should we ask? Well, good question. Second point is, if that's the promise of prayer, then what is our posture to be in prayer? How do we go into prayer knowing these things? Now, the first thing we have to say is obvious, but still needs to be said. None of us are ever going to have a perfect posture in prayer. Some days our posture will be better. Some years our posture will be better. Sometimes it'll be worse. But we know that we can improve upon our posture. You know this, right? If you think of the, the analog here, um, some of us have really bad posture, right? We slouch and people point that out. Like over time, you can actually improve your posture. And so I choose the word posture because of that image. We can actually get better at prayer. We can improve in prayer. The way in which we come to God can improve. But also there's a natural sense in which when we come to God, we will posture ourselves some way. So how can we posture ourselves? Now, as I was reflecting on this, uh, my mind went to the brother of our Lord, James. And if you've ever read James's letter in the New Testament, you know that James paid great attention to the Sermon on the Mount because in fact, you see lots of quotations, certainly allusions to the Sermon on the Mount if you know them both well. And one particular place that it shows up as we see in our verse, is in James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. What does Jesus say in verse 7? He says, ask and it will be given to you. So you can see the connection there. 
James says you do not have because you do not ask. Second thing he says is you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So we can explore this for a few moments and we can get an idea of a posture of prayer, what James and Jesus might be inviting us into. So the first thing would be the first part of the verse. You do not have because you do not ask. So first things first, are you asking? Have you asked? You may think a lot about those ways in which you want to change, those ways in which you long to be set free from certain dark, sinful patterns. You may think a lot about the way in which you want to lean into relationships differently, or you want there to be a reconciled relationship, either from your past or even now. You may think about lots of things. You may worry about lots of things. You may experience anxiety about lots of things. You may even think God would, should want to do these things. But James would ask us, do you have a posture of petition? Do you have a posture of asking? Do you ask your father? Because we know that when we ask, we're assuming something about our father. Several things, at least A, he's listening. B, he cares. And C, he might actually do something about it. So James invites us to a posture of asking. You know, uh, one of the things that I frequently do, I try to do regularly, is when my kids ask me about something, whether I say yes or, or no, I will answer them and then I'll say, but thank you for asking. Even if I say yes, I'll say thank you for asking. Now, I don't do it every time. But one of the reasons I do this is because I want to cultivate in them this desire, this belief, this understanding, this posture of requesting things of their father. And as Jesus said, if I'm evil and want to give good things to my children, then how much more would their heavenly father want to hear their requests and give them good things? One commentator, uh, when exploring this, says, it might trip us up to think God already knows what we need, and yet he still tells us to ask him. James still calls us to a posture of asking. We read in our passage today, do not be like the Pharisees or the Gentiles, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So why would James say have a posture of asking? Why not have a posture uh, that's more stoic? Why not have a posture that's committed to fatalism, saying, I believe God will give me good things. He's committed to me. Therefore, I shouldn't have to ask him. That might make sense to us, but that's not the logic of of the scriptures. Your father knows what you need. He's going to give you good things, so ask him. Why? Well, this commentator that I'm about to read from is pulling from the greatest uh, quotes uh, from John Calvin and Martin Luther, and he sort of puts them all together. And he says, well, to that question of if God knows what we need, then why must we have a posture of asking? He replies, to this we reply that the reason why God's giving depends on our asking is neither because he's ignorant until we inform him, nor because he's reluctant until we persuade him. The reason has to do with us, not with him. The question is not whether he's ready to give, but whether we are ready to receive. So in prayer, we do not prevail on God, but rather prevail on ourselves to submit to God. True, the language of prevailing on God is used in regard to prayer, but it's an accommodation Even when Jacob prevailed on God, what really happened is that God prevailed over him, bringing him to the point of surrender when he was able to receive the blessing which God had all the time been longing to give him. So, we must have a posture of asking. And when we come, it's less about informing God. In fact, it's not really about that at all. 
but it's rather coming to terms with what it is that we need, what it is that we desire, and to go through the faith-building exercise of bringing it to God, knowing that it is only from Him that we can receive it. So if that's the first side of the posture, is a posture of asking, that is confidence that our Father wants to hear from us. The next posture is that of soberness. The second part is James says, you must ask, but you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So a way to summarize this would be that we should treat prayer as your will be done, but we often treat prayer as God, my will be done, not your will be done. If we reflect on it, we all are prone to indulge our appetites, aren't we? And we're, and we're prone to do it in a way that is insidious enough and tricky enough to where it might look good or it might look holy. But in fact, we know it's not. Right? We might be tempted to come and tell God in no uncertain terms how he should run the universe. We might be tempted to tell God that our will should be done because our will is better. But this misses the point of prayer. It doesn't please God and it doesn't help us grow in our relationship with him. It doesn't grow us in submission. It does something else. You see, when we pray, asking God for things so that we can, as James said, spend it on our passions, we're actually missing God. We're not moving toward God in vulnerability because vulnerability is disclosing our desires to him. But rather, if we treat the relationship transactionally, we begin to demand from God. But prayer and asking is about disclosing our desires and bringing them before God, that he can see them and we entrust them to him. But there is a other way to pray. We feel good about praying and we're going through the motions of prayer, but in fact, we don't disclose anything. We just run through a list of desires. Right? We, we in a sense, it doesn't sound like demanding, but it is. It's just saying, hey, here's my list. It would be great if you could do this. But rather, what if we slow down and we, we truly asked the way that James invites us to ask? We truly asked the way that Jesus invites us to ask. Where we bring in vulnerability our desires before God and lay them before him and trust him with them. Now, to give you a picture between the difference before I answer the question, well, how would we actually do this? Like, give me some practical things. I'm going to give you two practical steps, just like I did last week at the end of the sermon. I gave you two very practical steps to do this week. I'm going to do that. But before we do that, I want to tell you an illustration that kept coming to my mind as I thought about the differences. That is to say, my will be done, requesting that way, versus these are the things I desire, Lord, but your will be done. Those are two different postures, okay? You've seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, yes? Do you remember a character, maybe, who was very demanding, who was very clear with her asking, right? It was Veruca Salt. And if you remember when Veruca introduces herself to Willie, he says, Veruca, I thought that was a type of wart, right? That's what he says. But as you watch Veruca, you see that everyone clearly is watching her ask. She's constantly asking for what she wants. But everyone also knows She's not asking in a sense of, this is what I desire. This is me being vulnerable. It's rather her demanding constantly. She's demanding, constantly telling her father, I want this, I want that. Obviously, to spend on her own desires and appetites. And at one point, they go into a room and there are golden geese. You remember this room? And she says, Daddy, I want a golden goose. 
And as she's walking toward the golden goose, her dad turns around, opens his wallet, and says, Willie, how much is the golden goose? And he said, those aren't for sale. And he said, just name your price. And Willie says, she can't have one. They're not for sale. And she turns around, loses her mind. Just, you can go, just watch it on YouTube. She loses her mind. She starts singing some weird song. There's lots of weird songs in that movie, I know. She sings this weird song, and she ends up climbing onto a scale, and it measures her as a bad nut. And she falls through, and she goes to where? Willie says, where will all bad nuts go? And that is to the trash can. So then her dad jumps in after her. But my mind just kept going to this, right? Because we see the, the courage, in one sense, if you try to affirm something in Veruca. It's the courage to constantly be clear with what she wanted and ask. I know no children in this room know what that's like. So she's asking, she's asking, she's asking, but everyone in the, all the characters in the movie and all of us watching, we know. She's not asking in vulnerability. She's demanding. She's demanding that she can spend it on her passions. And if it's so obvious for us to see, don't you think God, who is all wise and all good, who really wants our good, also sees when we do that? Of course he does. So we have a posture of prayer that's vulnerability that can say, this is what I long for. This is what I desire but your will be done. But it's not a, but your will be done, you're going to do what you want to do anyway. No, it's not that at all. The posture that Jesus invites us to is a, Father, this is what I want. These are the reasons why I think it's good. But in the end, I know that if you wait to answer or if you don't answer or if you answer in another way, it's because you see something that I can't see. You can see something that would be bad for me or for others or against your will. I heard Tim Keller say once, even after he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, that if we knew what God knows, we would always ask for what God gives. So we must ask, we must ask, and yet we must trust. And that's a scary thing. That's the vulnerability of prayer. So the posture is one of asking, but with open hands. Henry Nouwen said, the task of prayer is the task of learning how to unclench your fists. And so the promise of prayer is that he wants to hear from us and he'll always give us good things. The posture of prayer is to be committed to asking, although he already knows, but asking with open hands. So how do we do this? In conclusion, how do we do this? Well, two practical things. Final point is the practice of prayer. Now, I use the word practice intentionally because when we practice, we get better at something. But also when we practice, doesn't it shape us? When we practice, we actually change. So two practical things. Include your reasons with your requests. Include your reasons with your requests. This week, when you go to God in prayer, today, when you go to God in prayer, will you take time to include your reasons in your requests? Not just reading the list of requests, but give God the reasons. In fact, for years and decades and hundreds of years, the language of arguing with God in prayer has been used. In fact, Tim Keller notes uh, in his book on prayer that J.I. Packer suggests that we should lay before God as a part of our prayer the reasons why we think what we ask is the best thing. 
And I love this idea. It's so practical. It's so insightful. And just to be clear, by arguing, they don't mean telling God why what, he, what you want is what's best. But rather it's telling him the reasons why you think it's best. And there's a difference there. So as we go before God in petition, making our desires known, we then have to reflect on the reasons. And when we reflect on the reasons, we do this in light of what we know about God, what we know about the world, what we know about his heart, what we know about mission. Oftentimes, it's helpful to slow down and journal these prayers. It's helpful to actually write them out. It slows you down. You can go back and look. You have a record of what you've asked God for. But also, in the slowing down, I have found that when I do take the discipline of writing out the reasons why I'm requesting, I oftentimes revise what I'm requesting because the knowledge of my own heart deepens. And I think, oh, wow, that really did seem like pure-hearted. It's not really pure-hearted. And then that leads me into a type of confession or a reframing of why I think this might be good. And so sometimes as I do this practice, my understanding of my reasons deepen, but sometimes they lessen. Sometimes my requests lessen in their urgency because I actually am more in tune with my true desire and God's true purposes in the world. And I realize, ah, they don't actually match up the way I thought they did. (laughs) That is to say, my desires and God's purposes. And so what this does is it actually ends up giving greater power to our prayers, whether your reasons lessen or they deepen, because this is when we actually experience Peter's encouragement to us to cast all of our cares on the Lord. Because we don't just say things, we begin to understand why they matter to us. We begin to understand why they're burdening us. So as we come and make our requests, here's the practice. Give God the reasons to argue with him in that way. And all I mean by that is lay out your reasons before him. Talk with him. Open yourself up to his feedback in a sense. His spirit will Open the eyes of your heart. He will help you understand your desires. So the first practical thing this week is in your praying, include your reasons with your requests. The second is reflect on your resistance to yield. Reflect on your resistance to yield. There will be times as you give reasons that you recognize this is not good. My requests are not reasonable. But then, even when you recognize that, you'll feel, in certain instances, uh, like your heart won't let those things go. It just squeezes them. You can't let them go. There's a deep resistance in your heart and soul to yield them to the Lord. Reflect on that. When you experience that, reflect on that. And the reason is, is because when you experience this resistance, sometimes what you'll realize is that what you've uncovered is actually an idol. It's actually something that you want more than you ought to want. It can be a good thing, but you've made it an ultimate thing. Anytime you and I recognize something and we can't yield it to God, it's a signal that we're dealing with as what Augustine called a disordered love. Maybe something that is good, but we've gotten the order wrong. You see, when we give our reasons for our requests, We'll know them better. And things will come to us we know we need to yield, but we'll feel a resistance. And this week, I want you to reflect on your resistance to yield. That sense of resistance 
That inability to say, these are my reasons, Lord, but I know that whatever you do will be for my good. And if you don't answer in this way, it'll be better. When you and I can't do that from the heart, I mean really from the heart, we need to pay attention to that. It should trigger a great deal of self-examination. Because if we don't do this type of work, we will find ourselves enslaved to, enslaved to paralyzing emotions or out-of-control behavior, demands on other people, a neediness that isn't fair, expectations that no one could handle, all because we're holding on to something that God's inviting us to release, to relinquish. So this week, as you pray, I want you to think about including your reasons with your requests and then reflect on your resistance to yield. Now, in summary, Jesus tells us in this passage that we have assurance that God, our Heavenly Father, will always give us what is best. He will always give us what is best because he loves his children. What this means is there's not a single parent in this room or on this earth that has a a larger desire to give good gifts to their children than God our Father does. No one can match his desire to give good gifts to his children. This is what Jesus is arguing. That is why we can trust him. So we're assured that God will give us nothing but good, but yet we know that we often lack confidence, don't we? We lack confidence in his promises. We have an unfaithful, selfish posture in prayer so often. And we, when we think about it, lack zeal in our practice because we're so resistant to yielding when we recognize he's calling us to yield. And we're afraid to give our reasons because we'd rather just give our requests and move on. This is our prayer life. This is why I said at the beginning, no one is arriving at prayer. No one has arrived at prayer. We need great encouragement in prayer. And what we have to recognize is that when we step into these practices this week, when we step into these two practices I've given you, the only confidence you have, if you don't have confidence in the quality of your praying, is the confidence in the quality of Jesus's prayers for us. All of our confidence is built on this. Jesus exercised complete confidence in his Father's promises, even when we almost always lack confidence in God's good word to us. Jesus had the perfect posture in prayer, even though we, as James said, are so prone to either timidity in prayer, doubting our Father's love, or selfishness, demanding that the Father love in the way that we want him to. But yet Jesus perfectly had a posture of submission to his Father. He wasn't timid and he wasn't demanding. And we know that Jesus never lacked zeal in his practice. He was always persistent in prayer. And guess what? He's still persistent in prayer. He's interceding for you and for me. What is he reminding the Father of? He's reminding the Father that these are your children because I've purchased them. These are your children that I prayed for and continue to pray for. These are your children that are covered in my blood. These are your children that are forgiven. These are your children that are redeemed. Jesus is praying these things for us, and it's Jesus' prayers for us. It's his substitute for us that made his prayers possible. That's what we rest in this week. And so maybe what I'm saying, ultimately, our encouragement in prayer is that God listens because we're his children. 
And we've been adopted into his family because Jesus has purchased you. So this week, don't be timid. But this week, also don't be scared. Don't be scared to give the Father your desires, to give him the reasons for your desires, and then to sink, to rest, to yield in his goodness. That is good news. The world is not on your shoulders. Your life is not on your shoulders. The life of your children and your loved ones is not on your shoulders. The life of those people who work with you and for you as business owners and managers, their life is not on your shoulders. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. He can handle them. Your Father gives good gifts. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you not only hear, but you respond. We're so grateful that um, you hear our hearts and yet you respond with what is best for us. As we come in a moment to a time of reflection, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would guide us to the specific things that we need to ask for. Would you reveal to us specific things that we need to yield to you? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.